Hello, and welcome to Harder Than It Looks, Parking Uncovered, a podcast to facilitate connections and illuminate real solutions to common problems within the parking and mobility industry. I'm Brian Wolf, President and CEO of Parker Technology, and I'll be your host as we speak with parking professionals from across the industry at all levels to uncover tips, tricks, and best practices to manage what we all know is harder than it looks, parking a car. On the show today is Julie Dixon, founder and owner of Dixon Resources Unlimited. Julie Dixon is the founder and owner of Dixon Resources Unlimited, a parking consulting firm that supports municipal parking and transportation programs across the U.S. She boasts over 30 years of parking management experience, specifically with soliciting, developing, deploying, operating, and maintaining parking and transportation solutions. Dixon Resources Unlimited just celebrated its 10th year anniversary and, more recently, was named IPMI's Organization of the Year. In today's show, we're going to cover establishing a thriving business from the ground up, leading and motivating a high-velocity team, and overcoming adversity in a predominantly male industry. First, Julie, welcome to the show, and congratulations both on 10 years and on being named IPMI's Organization of the Year. I bet that was thrilling. You have no idea, Brian. Thank you so much for having me here today. And honestly, I'm still floating on a bit of a cloud because to receive that type of prestigious recognition, honestly, it really, I still have those pinch me moments. And to come out of IPMI and to feel just so celebrated, it really is just probably one of the most rewarding experiences of my career. I'm so thrilled for you. I know 10 years is a substantial time. It's hard to get businesses up and running, which we'll get into in just a second. And, and the, personally, what I love is I love to see the progression of the leaders of these organizations. So early on, you can see hunger in their, eye, in their eyes. And as they get, have success, you start to see their shoulders get a little lower and a little lower as the stress leaves their body. And I can certainly see the confidence now that you're exuding after 10 years to be up and running. And so it it is so fun to see that progression for sure. Yeah, I don't know about the stress leaving the body, but I appreciate that. And I will say just the confidence that has been infused by our just industry peers is, again, just such a thrilling experience. And to have just some of the folks that came up to us at the conference, these are like big names in our industry that were giving us the pat on the back. It was just, again, it's it was one of those milestones in my career that I don't know that I'll be able to replicate. Yeah, maybe at the 20-year mark. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Honestly, 10 years, 10 years flew by, I have to be honest with you, especially from when I started, because I really did just start this by myself to help make parking more manageable. And if you'd asked me 10 years ago that I'd be sitting here with the team that we have, that I just, it wouldn't have been anything that was really on the roadmap, quite honestly. Yeah, that's the best kind of success, isn't it? Yeah, very organic, I have to say that. Sometimes I pulled my hair out, but a lot of the times it's just, it's been fun. And I think that that's the part for me that the fun is contagious, quite honestly. And don't get me yeah. wrong, it's not always easy. And I know you can relate to that. But the part that they're I'm up for a puzzle, up for a challenge, and that's really what we get to deal with every day. And that's what's been great is watching it be infectious amongst our team and our customers and just across the industry for that matter. 
Yeah, that's awesome. That's going to bleed into the first couple of questions here. So let me start with, rather than the story of how you got into parking, I like to do things a little bit differently because we'll get to that. But I'd like to actually hand the mic to you and ask you or tell you you can go back as far as you want to go and just tell me your story, how you got from place to place, how you got from here to there. Because my experience is you can learn a lot about a person by where they start, the decisions they made, the transitions they made. And so I I like to hear the richness of people's stories. Oh, I love the opportunity to talk about myself. Honestly, it's one of the funnest things because of the path that I've taken. So I am the only girl. I have three older brothers. And I think that actually really resonates and says a lot about why I do what I do and where I work. Because the reality is growing up in that kind of an environment... I was not a girly girl. I was very much a tomboy my whole life growing up. And I think my family is a very competitive family. And it's something that has obviously carried through into everything that I've done. My family is a family that I now know are a family of entrepreneurs. I didn't know what that meant at the time. But I always watched my my parents and my brothers working multiple jobs and really just bootstrapping it. And I didn't really realize the influence that really had on me until a much later age. But the other thing that was really unique was I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley in Southern California. And my first official job was I actually worked at Disneyland. And I always tell people that really speaks a lot to me about the customer service core values. When you got hired at Disneyland back in the day, there was part of the training program. You went through a really intensive two-week training program. And part of that was, and I hope y'all are sitting down when you hear this, the motto was, hey, a family of four is paying $100 to get through the gate. We have to make sure that they have that unique experience. And when I tell people $100 to get a family of four in today, they all laugh at me. But the reality is that's what the cost was at that time. And it was quite pricey. And that was really something that always resonated with me was to make sure that people get value for what they pay for. And I was the first person in my family to actually go to college. And that's really where things really started to take off because I went to the University of California, Santa Barbara. And at the time, my parents basically wouldn't let me have a job my freshman year because I needed to be focused on school. And at the end of my first year of college, there was a job posting and it was the highest paid student job on campus, which again, being competitive and motivated, I'm like, oh, let's go for that. And it happened to be a community service officer working for the University of California Police Department. And so at the time, I was really motivated by the fact that this was the job that was going to basically pay me the most. And then once I became what was known as a CSO, it really just turned my focus and the fact was I really feel like I learned more on the job than I did in class for that matter and it was at that point I accelerated very quickly in that role and some people today might think I was being a smart ass at the time but my boss who was in charge of the CSO organization I asked her probably my first week or two into the job and I asked her what her career plan was and how long she planned to be in that role. And the reality was because I wanted that job. And I really wasn't being a smart ass or trying to be a troublemaker. I just really wanted to know what her game plan was because I wanted that position because I saw so much opportunity for how the organization could be run. 
And it was an opportunity that I really wanted to take advantage of. And so that was always in the side burner for me. And then my police lieutenant at the time came up to me one day and said, hey, I recommended you for a job at the Isla Vista Foot Patrol. And the Foot Patrol happens to be a mutual aid division of the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department that in conjunction with the University Police Department, it's basically two law enforcement agencies that work in cooperation because Isla Vista is the college town that's adjacent to UCSB. And okay. to this day, still the most densely populated one square mile west of the Mississippi. And they never had a parking enforcement officer. And I said to my lieutenant, I'm a CSO. I love being a CSO. And he says, Julie, it pays $15 an hour. At that time, I was making $8 and I think 21 cents or 24 cents an hour. And I said, who do I talk to? And I showed up at the Isla Vista Foot Patrol and truly walking through the doors of that office is really what really turned my career. And nice. it was to this day, one of the funnest jobs that I ever had. They had never had a parking enforcement officer. I had never been a parking enforcement officer and they literally handed me a ticket book and a bike and said, good luck. They knew I had all the training from working for the university police department. So I had the skill set, the radio communications, et cetera. And that's when I went out and really started what I always say today is dealing with curb management, congestion mitigation. I just didn't have all the fancy words. <laughs> right. And the reality was that's really where I learned to apply my Disneyland customer service skills because the reality is, and I say this to parking enforcement officers all across the country, there's another ticket right around the corner. And if you have the opportunity to educate and inform someone, take that opportunity because the reality is, if this is a chronic abuser, you'll get them the next time. And again, as Cindy Campbell says, you're not going to necessarily win a toaster oven at the end of the month just for writing the most tickets. And the reality was we were really trying to solve for a different problem. It was really about making sure that we had emergency vehicle access abilities to get down the roadway. And it was really that opportunity to directly engage the community. But now at the time, I wasn't necessarily the most popular person on campus. Some of the names that I was dubbed were not necessarily appropriate <laughs> to share on a public communication. <laughs> I can only imagine. And to tell you, my face was literally on the picture of the daily student newspaper very frequently with big marks and hashes through my face to tell you what that experience was. But the reality is I wouldn't change it for the world because to work with the people that I worked with and the support that I was garnered is something that you just, you can't, you don't get that everywhere. And to this day, those are the folks that I worked with helped shape the person that I am today. But I will highlight, I was one of only two women in that office and the I was also the youngest. So it's the reason why when I mentioned being the youngest and only girl really served me well because I don't take, I'll just say, take crap from pretty much anyone because again, raised the way that I was. And that really counted to my advantage because I really did fit in and was really able to still be myself and be comfortable in being myself. And I, I really pride myself on those opportunities. And then the reason why I mentioned the CSO job was because while still being a student, the person that I had asked, when are you leaving? She got another job on campus and I was actually able to apply for that position. And I was actually one of very few students that was actually hired into 
a career positioned on the university campus. But wow. here's the crazy part. People tell me all the time, why do you work so hard? Honestly, I had two full-time jobs when I was at UCSB and that's just what I do. And in the case of both jobs, I was technically also 24 seven on call because in some cases we dealt with emergency responses, crises on campus, things like that. So for me, working around the clock has really just been what I've done my whole career. And then from there, when I worked at the CSO office, I basically had 50 student employees every year coming in, doing all the training. And we did everything on campus from bike enforcement, because bicycles are the main mode of transportation on campus, special event management. And then the really unique thing ha that happened as a result of my parking enforcement gig is that I actually took what CSO was a nonprofit organization and I actually introduced a monetized opportunity where we started competing against the university parking services department for parking contracts. And I actually developed a parking division for the CSO office. And at that time, the chief loved me because we were pretty much in a recession at that time. And I started generating contract revenue services as a result of the parking enforcement contracts. So. I didn't, again, know that was being an entrepreneur at the time, but right. honestly, it's just been kind of part of my skills of what I've really done my whole career. So yeah, that's really how it started and where I came from. Wow. So many threads to tug on here. So the first, I would like to know the behind the scenes training at Disneyland. What surprised you most? So the $100, I have a story about that. Now I could share that with you in just a second about my trips. I We went to Disneyland a lot because we had a, a great, we considered a second grandmother in California. We were in Santa Monica a lot with my youngest or my oldest, I guess. And, and so what might somebody who hasn't gone through that training not know about the training that you got at Disneyland? Absolutely. So the first two weeks, and again, I don't know what it's like today. This was a long time ago. We're talking in the 80s, everyone here. So it's probably people, pretty close to the same, though, is my yeah, guess. Probably around there. Honestly, first of all, I was raised on Disney. This was my life. And again, this was yeah. before VCRs and all of the things and of the aspects of the accessible social and social media that we have today. But the first part of it was the behind the scenes part. First of all, to be able to look behind the curtain and really see the logistical organization for how the operation really functions, just the uniform deployment of how you go up and check out your costume for the day. That process, again, I was 16 years old because this was the first legal job that I could have at that point. That part was like awe-inspiring, but the two-week training was actually in class there was one whole day on just cash handling where you learned how to detect a counterfeit bill, how to manage monies, which I have to tell you to this day when I go in and audit programs because I audit a lot Same. of money rooms. So to have that Disney training, because again, Disney doesn't want to lose a penny. And then really that customer service interaction on how to de-escalate a situation. But what it really was interesting about for that whole two weeks of training was really about how to maintain the magic. And that's something that to this day, I still give Disney a lot of credit for. Walt had certain standards and that was something that really came across really clearly in the training. And here's one of the other cool things that I don't get to tell a lot of people. As I worked at Disneyland, one of the things that was really cool, I ended up working in the commercial bakery my senior year of high school summertime. 
and it was the best shift you could ever imagine because I would come in on a graveyard shift and I'd get out in time to be able to go to the beach with my friends. But the neat part about the job was I worked with people that opened the park with Walt. So to work with those types of legacy folks and to get to hear the stories. And then what was really neat about the job I had because of who they were, I got to walk every corner of that park above ground and below ground. And it's just still so amazing. Like when I think about the unique experiences that I've been able to have, but that training class, there are still things today that I use that came out of that Disney training without a doubt. Well, that's where I want to go next because as we are in and increasingly Disney is held up, Disney, the Ritz Carlton, right? You pick any of the luxury brands, they are increasingly held up as the standard and as I've said in speeches before and presentations before, you probably don't need to be Disney, but you need to be pretty close. And so the real question for us is how do we find people and how do we instill that kind of passion for customer experience that they deliver or that they it, it, they drive into each of the employees? And I'm sure it's probably a hiring thing too. They probably will kick people out in the process as well. So if you have pearls of wisdom around that front, I think that might be really helpful to anyone listening. The interviewing process, you're absolutely right, is the key. And I think that's something that really does stand out, not only from when I worked at Disney, but also for the CSO organization, because the reality for when we were a CSO is that these were oftentimes people that were calling for an escort to be able to be walked home at night or somebody to provide you safety and security if the police department was unavailable. So I really think about the two on par when you talk about that customer service level and customer service support level. And so one of the things in both interview processes that I think is really special was in some cases the group engagement process where you basically Mm. had like group interviews where you talk about a challenge or really navigate a puzzle together because I think that's something just team dynamics that you really can see and then there's also the interview process where I call it an oral board but really that direct face-to-face where you're asked the challenging questions and it's really interesting because and I probably don't give anything away here but There's two things that I often participate in municipal panels, and there's a couple questions that I learned back in the day, especially on the law enforcement perspective, and I always use the example of when is it acceptable to receive a benefit as a result of your job? And we always use the example of, hey, one of your colleagues, and they constantly go to this coffee shop because this coffee shop gives them free pizza, for example. And you have to take the person often on a course, on a navigation of at what point is the slice of pizza too much and when does it get to be a problem? And you usually can take the person on that path to help them navigate that. And we do this a lot oftentimes with money collections where, hey, your coworker's having a tough time and you notice that they grab a couple quarters out of the coin bin and use it to pay for their cup of coffee. And what's really interesting is watching people take the path with you as you talk about the answers. And at first, when it's a couple quarters, oh, I get it. Now you see that they're actually buying their lunch with it. Or now you see that they're actually taking a bag home. And it's interesting because honestly, what you're looking for is 
the person to have that oh moment and realize wait a minute taking anything is bad and oftentimes during the interview when you can hear them recount and realize you know what i just i wasn't thinking about it and actually taking even the 50 cents is wrong and it's interesting because it's very authentic because in some cases when they have that realization moment maybe the yeah. answer wasn't the right answer but they recognize their mistake yeah. and that's the part as an interviewer that you have to see that this person has common sense and mm -hmm. would they correct their behavior we all make mistakes it's what you do with it when you realize that you make a mistake. And I have found that in the inter interview process and the engagement process, that's really played out. One of the things when I say group interviews too, and it's something that we do, we actually call it the gauntlet jokingly, but um, we're a small team and we have a process where you often talk to pretty much everyone on the team, oftentimes in group settings. That can be overwhelming, there's no doubt about it. But the reality is you pick us as much as we pick you. And right. so really getting to understand once you get over the nerves and all of that to realize, can this person be comfortable and you feel comfortable? Can you trust them? Do they exhibit good thought process? Because that's really the whole ability to make someone a parking expert. That's an opportunity that's on us as business owners. But the reality is you got to make sure that they have good bones, right? That they have good foundational skills. And when we think about common sense, logic, that's really what we're looking for. And you maybe thought that 50 cents wasn't a big deal, but when you come to the realization as I take you on that escalation and when you recognize it, that's really when you know that you've got someone that has good thinking skills. So yeah, their eyes pop open. Exactly. Because and you, just... you wait for that moment. And what you honestly do is you wait for how long it takes for that yeah. realization that to yeah. settle in. So yeah. that's something that I think from a tip from something that we've used in the past and something that I still use today, I found really takes you somewhere. I don't ask the whole like questions. I don't ask the negative questions. Like, What's your worst trait? One of the other yeah. things I like to tell people is, hey, if I called one of your coworkers at your last job, what would they tell me is the thing that you probably need improvement on? I like to do yeah. that because it's situational and you see the person in their brain go, oh God, if they called Sally would probably say this. And usually because folks are so accustomed to the cookie cutter questions that you really do tend to get more authentic responses as well. Yeah, that's great. So sticking to behavioral questions, tell me about situations. Let me walk you through a situation. What's your reaction to it? I know a lot of times big consulting firms will ask you to try and solve a problem, the puzzle that you just described. They don't care that you got the right answer. They don't even care that you got to an answer. They wanted to hear your thinking, right? So I hear really similar things. And so even on frontline, as we're hiring frontline people, we're trying to get inside their head to see how they're processing information, to see how they'll react to certain situations, and then ultimately t helping them understand that 50 cents a day times 20 days is 10 bucks, and 10 bucks times 12 is $120, and so you probably better just stop at zero. Absolutely. Because that's not your money, you right? Got it. But I, I definitely could see an 18 year old, my 18 year old self, oh, I've just used 50 cents to buy a cup of coffee. There's two quarters here. Absolutely. I'm not it's, thinking about the dollars. It definitely, that. And you actually physically can see the thought process when, and then yeah. it's when they backtrack and realize, oh, wait, taking anything is wrong. That's yeah. really what you're looking for, but also looking for what that line is. And I have to mm -hmm. tell you, having worked with law enforcement my whole career and having sat on those oral boards where they're interviewing police officers or promotions and things like that, 
it really is an important conversation to understand like where is the line and i've just found a way to be able to apply that in the way that we do our jobs today that's great so trying to find the line i like that theme for sure and so then even as you told your story through the parking department and then the police departments i could hear you weaving entrepreneurial thought processes all the way through that i could hear you say things like Oh, I wondered why that made that so successful. And I wonder what I could do to make that better. And this natural curiosity that came out. So obviously you said your parents were entrepreneurs. It sounds like your brothers were entrepreneurs. Is that, did that come naturally to you or did you learn that growing up? You know what? I think it comes from the competitive nature for how I was raised. So I think I was just always surrounded by it. And it's, an, I think, just a part of who I am. And yeah. it, just looking around even to my extended family, the hustle is real and you have to work hard. And that's something that I think that work ethic really came early, very early in my life. And even as a kid, it's funny when I hear people talk about having chores. I didn't have chores. I just had responsibilities that were my responsibilities. I didn't get an allowance or anything like that. Mind you, I had a very lovely life, no complaints. My mom loved going shopping, took me with her. We always had a good time, no doubt about it. But I also knew what went behind that. The fact that my mom went back to work when I was in third grade and my job when I came home from school was to make sure dinner was ready when my family got home from work. Yeah. So third grade. Yeah. Third grade. And I'm a very good cook, mind you. Now, here's the best part. I'll tell you because I have to think (laughs) back to this. It started out where my mom would have like the prep, like my job was to put something in the oven, like the instructions were there or certain things that I had to turn on or do. But as I got older and basically more progressive and learned how to do things, then I was absolutely helping to make dinner. But it was also so that food, because here's one thing that I will tell you that I also feel very fortunate for is we had family dinner every night. We sat around the table and mind you, our family dinner table was very competitive as well, which was really funny. We still joke about this today. But the reality was we had dinner every night as a family. I can count on probably less than two hands on how many times a family member was missing from the dinner table. And I think that's also the fun part. Now, I will joke our family dinner table to this day is still relentless. We always Mm. joke like the big hands on Julie or the big hands on one of my brothers because for some reason, everybody just really get that target. And that's also probably where my thicker skin has come from, too, is that why when I went into my other jobs, because the teasing and the taunting, that's just how we were raised. And it was fun. It was literally table stakes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, And again, I wouldn't change it for the world because that's just and mind you, I'm a sensitive Sally. A lot of people don't know that about me. Oh, my God. Waterworks can come on super easy for me if I need it to. But the reality is that's really how. I learned how to really cope and really deal with stuff. I don't I, I don't think any of it was intentional, mind you, with all the books today. I think it was just how our family dynamic was. And then when you put our extended family around the table, OMG, it was just like, yeah, the volley, the volleying back and forth was always fun. And still to this day, even when it's just me and my aunt and the uncle at the table, we pick on each other relentlessly, but it's all in good stead and it's all with love. That's great. That kind of leads us into question number three. So you run a business, started it 10 years ago. Tell me about some of the initial steps that you took to get the business off the ground and what gave you the confidence 
to leap in the first place? a great question and a, a lot of people have had have heard me talk about this in some level of detail but my whole career people have always said you should have your own business and why are you doing this for other people and to make mm. other people look good why aren't you doing this for yourself and so when i left the university and i left santa barbara i went and worked with automated enforcement systems i worked for the company that brought the first red light cameras to the united states I really stayed in that law enforcement realm. But even from there, I was always a go-getter, always a hustler, always working probably way too many hours. I won't tell you I actually slept in my office at times. I don't encourage that. But what did I know? I was young and dumb. But when it got to the point where consistently I was hearing from folks that I should have my own business, and it was getting more real at that point because the company that I worked for at the time just really wasn't prioritizing the parking contracts that I had. And we mm. had a ton of opportunity because of the fact that we had just supported the SF Park program for the UPA grant. And so all yeah. of the outcomes of that and all of these cities were calling the company saying, hey, we want to work with you all. And it, she gets embarrassed when I tell her this, but the city of Newport Beach, her name is Evelyn Sang. She's the revenue manager there. And what happened was the company I worked for was really large and we couldn't come to terms on insurance. And Evelyn said, I just want to hire you. If you had your own business, I'd hire you tomorrow. And I said, uh, seriously? And she goes, yeah. And she says, yeah, absolutely. And so what I realized was with everything that I'd done at that point, this was the time to jump and to do something different. And here's the part, because trust me, there was a lot of chats, a lot of conversations with my family. And I realized that if I got that gig, like I'd be good for a good six months at least. That was the plan. Like I knew I was covered for six months if I could get that contract. And hey, worst case, if I got to go flip burgers at McDonald's, I'm not above that. That's just really how it goes. And so I'm like, now's as good a time as any. And so I took the leap. And the part that's really staggering to me, and this is the part that even to this day is still that pinch me moment. When I officially went live October 23rd of 2012, when I tell you my phone started ringing immediately, it was crazy because what I didn't realize is the reputation that I had developed at that point and the fact that when folks recognized that we could just work direct with each other. And I have to tell you the things that I had to do really fast in terms of getting my incorporation, getting all of my business entities established. I The benefit is because I'd worked with municipal contracts my whole career, I knew what I needed to do, but yeah. the speed at which I had to do it. But I will also tell you, I fell asleep at my laptop more than one point. People laugh at me because I broke the mouse on my laptop once <laughs> because I literally fell asleep on my laptop. So. I always joke with folks that when they, I always say, what do you think I'm sitting on the beach eating bonbons? That's always my tagline, right? Yeah. Because the reality is it was seven. It still is truthfully seven days a week. It's nonstop. Anybody that knows me knows they can call, text, reach out to me anytime. And unless I'm on an airplane, the reality is they're probably going to get a pretty timely response. But I never, ever anticipated having employees. I really did this with the intention of being able to help with parking opportunities. And yeah. I really thought I would have more time to go to the beach. And that's definitely not been the case. And the, the path that we've been on, it's been slow and steady, mind you. 
But uh, yeah, I never would have thought that we would have, I never would have thought we would be standing on the stage at IPMI receiving an award like Organization of the Year. And I could tear up right now to tell you how proud I am of that because I lived it. And I can tell you all of the sacrifices that are made. And I know, Brian, you know that more than anybody. There's been tons of opportunities and fun things that I've missed out on. But the reality is I still wouldn't change it because I'm super proud of what we've accomplished. You talk about waterworks. When you talked about your phone ringing off the hook, that almost made me tear up only because we know it's hard to do the right thing. It's hard to be high character. It's hard to put in super long hours and you just never know that it's going to work. And then the moment that you know it's working is absolutely the most gratifying, humbling time, at least for me. And so I could feel that pride and the relief that you felt when people said, I really just want to work with you. So it was Evelyn Song. Is that her name? Evelyn at with Newport, City of Newport. Okay, Evelyn Sang. Yep. So she was the one who said what everyone else was thinking. And and so congratulations again. That is just, that's so good. It's so good to be, to get that kind of feedback instantly. Yes. And really, it really was, I have to tell you one more thing. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but. No, it's okay. Every time I can shout her out, she gets mad at me because she doesn't (laughs) like being on stage, but we had a really big 10 year celebration and I actually was able to commemorate her with the first client mug and I was uh, yeah. proud to be able to give that to her because, like I said, it's been a very proud because she helped kick me in the butt. So I went off frame just for a second because I've got a first client cork from Champagne. Awesome. So I know that I know the sheer joy of having that first client and yeah. being able to celebrate it with them. That's Absolutely. good. I really like I said really proud. That's fabulous. Okay, so then. You race 10 years forward. You said you went stepwise. I know some very successful entrepreneurs who did it exactly the same way. They took on just as much as they could handle, but then they kept adding people. So you've got now, it's obvious you've got a great team, right? They respect and admire you. Tell me about the insights. What do you do on a daily basis to keep them motivated, to keep them in the seat to help you build a great business. What do you think it takes to keep great people? I'm still figuring it out. I want to be honest with you because (laughs) I know that's not definitely, if I knew the secret sauce, then I think I'd have even 20 more amazing people. But I think one of the parts that has been the challenge, but the reality is allowing them to be entrepreneurs as well and to let them manage their projects. When they first come on, we spend a lot of time kind of side by side shadowing. And what I like to describe is you've got that front person that's out here in front of the camera and you've got the new team member back here. And we really try to gradually put this person so that I can be in the background and put them out in the forefront. But it's really about timing of when they're comfortable with it as well. And then most importantly, always being available to them. And that's something that we're really busy. I'm not going to be shy. We're really busy. And the one thing that I hope that all of our team members know is when they call and ask for help, everything else gets pushed to the side. And that's something where we've worked on a really good kind of escalation model internally so that if they're frozen or stopped in their tracks, then we're not being productive. So whatever I can do to help remove hurdles or basically help address whatever the open issues are, 
that's something that we've worked really hard to really prioritize. But here's the other crazy thing, and I never thought I'd be saying this. We've hired such skilled team members that everyone doesn't have to come to me anymore. And that's the part that letting go is hard. There's no doubt. I'm a control freak. Anybody that knows me will tell you that. I'm type A. I'm not shy to admit it. And one of my biggest challenges is knowing when to let go and knowing yeah. that I don't have to be a micromanager. And the reality is being able to see the success of the people that I work with is probably one of the proudest opportunities that I've had. I know that I got to be the one that was at the mic to accept the award, but nothing made me happier than when Sean Conrad from IPMI on the first night of the conference said, hey, you're bringing your team up on stage, right? And I said, absolutely. I was so excited about that because I didn't know if that was going to be allowed. And the fact that they were all got to, not all of them, but a representation of the group got to be there. Sure. That was yeah. really one of the proudest moments. But when I get to see and witness their success and the fact that we have projects that I don't even have to touch anymore, who would have thunk that? And that's wow. the part where I really feel like so successful because of that. And anybody that knows me knows that it's probably one of the biggest challenges that I have is letting go. But the fact that I can let go and they are as successful as they are, I'm just so fortunate. And I got to tell you the other thing that's really neat, and I know you really can appreciate this, is I really like the people that I work with as well. We actually yeah. enjoy each other and we have fun together. We get to travel a lot for our job. So we spend a lot of time together and the fact that we seem to know each other really well, but it's also, we have a good time together. And that's, I didn't say this back when I was talking about interview processes, but one of my requirements without a doubt, besides having common sense is you have to have a sense of humor as well, because you can't work in this industry unless you have a sense of humor. Let's just be straight. That is absolutely true. So I hear a couple of really important things and I, I'll take you back to your mom and dad, right? You, when you bring people in, when you got home, you didn't have chores, you had responsibilities. And so I could imagine that you would set the same boundaries for your people. They come in, they don't have chores, they have responsibilities. And I'll give you a compliment. I, of course, you're a control freak because you're an owner and you know your name's on the door. But I see you handing work to or, or handing things off, handing work. That sounds bad. But I see you getting out of the way of your people and letting them shine, yes. right? And for me, that really is, it's, it is very gratifying to do it. First of all, for me to step away from the limelight and to see people grow is awesome. But I think in the end, what attracts great people to you is that, that they recognize that you will develop them. You're like a good coach. Yeah. You'll develop them and allow them to move on and be successful in other ways, which it's for me is really the key. Yeah, absolutely. The hardest part is letting them go when it's time, when they're ready to go and that is, I will be straight up. That is the <laughs> hardest part because the whole ride or die aspect of it. Yeah. And I get it. Everyone has their career ambitions, their family goals, etc. But to this day, that's possibly the hardest part of my job is when they are ready to move on to the next step. Because for me, why wouldn't you want to do this for the rest of your life? This is what I've chosen to do. But and again, it's just the reality and I get it. But that is something that I'm actually so proud to watch the people that I've worked with throughout my career just thrive and flourish. 
and I get that opportunity to be able to watch people that even when I was in my previous job had hundreds of people working with me but even going back to I mentioned the CSOs to this day I still stay connected thank goodness for social media because I get to watch their careers and watch their achievements and their milestones and it's just it's like a proud parent because you know yeah. that you are a part of their life and I'm just so pleased to be able to watch people really just hit their milestones and hit their achievements as well. Yeah, that, that's awesome. We could talk about this all day, but I'm going to transition just a little bit if I could. So you're well-known in parking and you're well-known for your accomplishments. You're also obviously a female in the industry, right? Tell me about the challenges you've faced as, as far as being a female in Obviously, parking is a pretty male dominator. At least it was seven years ago. A male dominated industry. Most of them are. And so, what are the unique challenges? And uh, and tell me ultimately what we can do to make that better for you and for the other women in parking. Absolutely. So you're not kidding in terms of it has evolved. It's gotten better. There's definitely more females. Not enough for that matter. And I will tell you, I know that I have a very unique character. There's no doubt about it. And the fact is that oftentimes, okay, we'll talk frankly here because I get called a bitch a lot. And the reality is, and a lot of us women leaders talk about this. If I was a guy, you wouldn't be calling me a bitch. You would be calling me strong and powerful. Hard charger. Yeah, I get it. And I I always like a duck. It rolls right off my back because the reality is if that's what it takes for you to sleep at night and that's what it takes for you to achieve your goals, it's the whole thing we learned as a kid. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And like I always tell people, the names I got called as a parking enforcement officer are so bad that I can't even repeat them here online. We bleep them. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing people are going to say that are going to influence me. In fact, it's only going to make me stronger for that matter to know that I somehow intimidate you or you're somehow challenged by that. So I do think that it's unfortunate that in our industry that women do receive those types of monikers and names. I think that's really unfortunate. I will tell you that when I was accepting my award on stage, anybody that was in the audience knows I might have gotten a little mushy at the end. I had one more line that I was going to say, and if anybody was in the room, you'll know that I recognized all the parking enforcement officers in the room because I was really proud to say that's where I started and look at me today. Yeah. And my plan was to recognize all the women in the room, but I knew that if I had done that, I would have started crying. So I had to take a pause and take my mic drop moment and walk away at that point. But I really wanted to do that because the reality is there are still so few of us and the challenge that we face today besides being called a bitch often is also having to deal with the fact that people try to put us in the corner still to this day. Now I got to tell you I've seen Dirty Dancing probably a hundred times and nobody puts baby in the corner and you want to try to put (laughs) me in the corner just be ready for it because the reality is especially when I'm out there defending my customer. The reality is you're not going to shut me down. If I'm out there trying to fight for the right, the justice and all of the outcome, then you're definitely messing with the wrong bitch for that matter. But I also think it's really unfortunate because I actually, when you say that it's recent, it really truly stays prevalent. And I witness it. I work with a lot of younger women in the industry. And the fact that I watch what happens at some of the events and the way that they often are manhandled or treated 
it's really unfortunate and the fact that we literally have to stick together and watch each other's backs and for those men in the industry that don't realize that we're doing that is happening because the reality is we've got some folks out there that maybe don't have the best intentions that even at this last conference i had someone that was of the male persuasion that tried to intimidate me and when i spoke to his female colleague about it and she basically said to me julie that's just how it is for us in this industry and i said that's really not how it should be and the fact is it's unacceptable and i'm actually embarrassed that you're almost justifying the behavior for the things that he said and i think it's something that we have to continue to work on and as women in our industry not accept it and i'm not going to get up there and start putting my bandana around my house and say we are strong but the reality is we are and the one thing i think that's important for all the women that are listening to this and to recognize is that when we are at the conferences when we are in meetings the fact is that we are there to support each other and i think that there's just an unspoken rule in our group i'm really proud to see like heather matthews and the team that have put together the women in leadership group it just demonstrates that there's still need for this type of unification because the challenges that we face individually when we really can rally as a group it's just a really good support system and i will tell you we have amazing women in our industry and i can't say that i'm best friends with all of them cuz they're the ones that are out there but i tell you i'm watching and that was probably the coolest thing at IPMI was the number of women that came up to me to pat me on the back and just say hey i've been watching you and it's cool because i can say the exact same thing to them we may not know each other well but the reality is we're all there to support each other and i think that that's just something that any woman listening to this needs to know like when you're at a conference when you're at a show we really are so few but we are all in this together and i think that's one of the neat things is that especially the women in our industry that are really out there in high power positions they've never been anything but accommodating and nice and supportive and i just really say that if you're new to the industry don't be shy to speak to anyone in the industry especially any of the women that you see out there they're just so generous with their time and their support yeah that's great so we'll make sure that we get contact information in the show notes So that if there's a young woman who is listening to this podcast who would like to feel that support, that they can get in touch with you. Obviously, I'm sure they can find you through LinkedIn and all of that. Okay, so before we leave the topic, I have to ask, are we making any progress? Is it getting better? It's gradual. Don't get me wrong. I think the reality is that we've got to figure out ways to recruit more women and recruit more diversity into our industry. I think that as folks we all joke about the fact like nobody ever plans to work in parking, right? And so I think that the reality of being able to put it out there, I will tell you that because of the fact that I'm always recruiting too and trying to bring talent to the table as well, it's just always being on the lookout for folks that exhibit that kind of talent. So I think that that opportunity to bring more women to the table is advantageous and i would just encourage everybody to be mindful of that and really looking at ways that we can try to market and recruit from there but i also think on the di- the diversity standpoint as well that being able to look at and really getting the diversity into our industry is advantageous i think as we have more and more startups and more and more tech companies we're starting to see some of that but it is still prevalently male. I think that's something that's absolutely evident just from the booths and the coverage. 
But I think that we just are all in this together and to keep making efforts to it. And just to recognize, especially our male leaders in the industry, is to take the time to ask the women that you work with about their experiences. Because for me to tell you just at the conference we were at last week that I actually had an incident. And I just, to tell you, if folks will talk to me and say things like that, imagine I'm a pretty, like I said, type A person. Imagine what they'll say to your younger and newer employees who maybe aren't as overconfident as I am. Yeah. Yep. Okay. You got one, one bit of advice for the men in the, that, that are listening and or in the industry? You know what? I actually said this to somebody last week. Would you talk to your daughter like that? Or would you want somebody to speak to your daughter like that? Or to your mother or to your wife? And so I think that's the part that we sometimes maybe forget or connect the dots on. But I, one of the vendors had brought their daughter. She was interning with them for the summertime. And this was her first conference. And it was funny because I actually joked with her. I said, oh, you're actually going to be okay. Because she was literally surrounded by not only her dad and her all of her uncles, per se. So I was like, you're good. But the reality is to be able to speak up and to not be shy to tell someone if somebody acts inappropriately or says something inappropriate to you. I think that's really where whether you reach out to one of your colleagues or reach out to somebody else in the industry, you don't have to put up with that. And I just really want everyone to understand. And for somebody to say to me, that's just the way it's always been, BS on that. It's our job to change that. And I really want to reinforce that to all of the women in our industry, especially those that are younger and newer to our industry, is that we don't tolerate that stuff. And so please don't hesitate to reach out for support. And we're always there to be able to provide coaching, guidance, And there's plenty of us out there, not enough, but there's plenty of us that have been there, done that most likely, and can definitely help give you some coaching and guidance if that's at all helpful. Wow, that's great. That is great. Okay. All right. Coming down in the home stretch here, we could talk all day, but you've got work to do and clients to make happy. I've got a couple of questions here for the lightning round for you. So if I were to ask your team, what is Julie's catchphrase? So if they heard somebody say a phrase, they're like, oh, that's, that is definitely Julie Dixon. What do you think it is? I have a couple. And if okay. it's okay to use foul language. Okay. Sure, go ahead. So our tagline is, we get shit done. Okay, and good. That's what I'm make sure. I don't want to be too yeah, appropriate. Yeah. The, but no. that's literally our tagline is, we get shit done. And the other one, though, that I've had my entire career is that I'm looking for solutions, not problems. And that means when you come forward with whatever the issue is, let's talk about what we got to do to fix it. Because the one thing I tell people all the time is, even though I may act like it, I don't know everything. (laughs) The reality is for us to fix something or for us to be able to move the needle, it's really about how we're going to figure it out together. And I have to tell you some of the best ideas and the best things that we've done moving forward have come as a result of somebody saying, would it be crazy if, and it's just, that's the benefit is that those creative out of the box ideas is really how we move the needle. So that's great. Okay. So tell me about not necessarily parking, but it could be parking. What is the hardest thing that you've ever done in your life? Ooh, that's really one. I have to think about the hardest thing that I've ever done. 
A lot of folks know that I just completed my MBA in May of this year. And while I didn't really tell, thank you very much, I didn't tell a lot of people that I was doing it. In fact, very few people knew, really only my team and my coworkers knew because I needed their help in order to achieve it. And it's funny because it being hard, it was more of the challenge because it was in person as well for two years. And so with my schedule and my travel, there were a lot of sacrifices that had to be made and a lot of the team members that I had to really lean on to help fill some gaps in. And I got to tell you, like, for me to have to tell a city, oh, you can't have your city council meeting on this day because I have a final or I have a midterm. It was not easy, but it was definitely hard. And I will tell you right now, I'm looking around going, now what do I do with myself? Because I have a big opening. It's been filled, mind you, with plenty of work yeah, to do of that I've been stacking up. But I'd say that was pretty that was pretty hard. And the reason why I probably didn't tell people about it too was because I don't like to tell people about my struggles. And it was also I didn't know if I was gonna be successful. I didn't know if I was gonna finish it or not. So I didn't start eking it out to people until a couple months before I was gonna graduate and to let people know that I was able to do that. But Yeah, that was pretty hard, was going to school and being able to achieve my master's while working full-time and traveling. No life, mind you. There was no life. I have to go find my friends again that I left basically a couple years ago. But yeah, that was pretty hard. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. That is... That's that, that is, I started my MBA and then I got promoted and that was the end of it. Man. I started it many times. And what's interesting, Brian, <laughs> and you'll appreciate this is my goal. I set it for myself was to try to have it done by the time I hit a milestone. And so I didn't know if I was going to be able to do it, but I'll tell you what, I'm very grateful to now be, have it in my rear view. Now the whole thing about what's next. OMG, I said I need to take a year off from any schooling, but we'll see if there's any more in my future. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, that's fun. Okay, so that's the hardest thing in life. What's the hardest thing about parking from your perspective? What's the hardest thing about parking? And this could be, I suppose, the vast majority of the people are going to be in parking. So let's get lots of heads nodding when you say this. What is The hardest thing is making sure that people deliver on what they say they can do. And I think that this has been a challenge for as long as I can remember is what slices it, dices it, julienne's, right? When I sold it to you and then uh, I got it. About the vendors. Yeah, and then I got it, yeah. Then I got it and it doesn't really do what you said it was gonna do. And then I can't get you on the phone to be able to respond to it. It's really frustrating to know that we still have that out there And for a lot of our younger salespeople to not understand how the dots connect from me pitching you the Hindenburg and then realize that you leave and then the customers left with whatever product or service set you left them with. So I do think that there's still a bit of vaporware being sold out there and the reality of support. And I think that's part of the challenges that I still have to this day. Integrations continue to be challenging. And I think that television doesn't do us any services because you see on the CSI shows that you can just start moving things with your hand on in the invisible space. And I think some people think that's real, but I do want to make sure that I think it's gotten a lot better. Don't get me wrong. 
but for people to actually deliver on what they promised to them and to return those phone calls because that's the part where I think our customer support hotlines are where they still are lacking and then mm. the follow through of actually delivering on your promises or your repair things like that those continue to be the things that plague me and where I do become a bitch because the reality <laughs> is going to make you do what you said you were going to do or you're going to pay yeah. the customer back so that's yeah. where I'd say that's pretty hard right now and it continues to be a challenge responsibility and accountability i love it okay so if you could wave your magic parking wand and fix one thing in parking maybe you already answered your question unless you want to go somewhere different what would it be what would you fix if you could wave your magic parking wand it could be one or two things yeah there's a couple things i think that the issue of politics and parking if i could take the politics out of parking that would be the first thing i would use my magic wand for and the fact that we are often the afterthought and then yeah. everyone's a parking expert, as we all yep. know. And yep. so I think that if we could take the politics out, the fact that I continue to work with programs where the politics influence the outcome, what the outcome should not be, when we talk about the betterment of our communities and what that real benefit should be, I really think that if I had my magic wand, I would take the politics out of parking and we wouldn't have to deal with that mishigash at any point in time. And have you seen anyone do it successfully? So take the politics out? Yeah. Slowly. I think that the one thing that, again, when you talk about having mottos, making data-driven decisions, I think it's something yeah. that everybody's gotten really good at promoting. And yeah. training our agencies and our customers yeah, to for sure. manage by data and not perception. I think that if we continue to put the data in front of folks and make sure that it's palatable data, make sure that it's understandable data, that it's legitimate data, that's the types of things that's going to help us be able to continue that conversation. I have seen it have an effect slowly but gradually, but I have also seen it where the politics get involved and data doesn't matter. And the biggest wallet wins, the biggest influencer wins. And I think that's really what's unfortunate. But I do think that if we all continue full steam ahead on that data influence decisions, that will help us all. But that's where when we talk about uniformity as an industry, we really need to make sure that we're all heading in a similar direction. We don't have to be on the exact same page, but promoting right. data as the driver behind decisions, especially policy related that will be a big win for us as an industry. And when you get that one off put person that says something opposite, those folks that want to influence things politically are going to just grab onto that one party and then leverage Yeah, that data that. point. That's yep. exactly right. So that's something yep. that I think the data aspect of it, having that influence. I am really concerned, especially here on the West Coast with the housing crisis being what it is. Our state legislators are making policy decisions that are going to have long-term ramifications that they're not going to see for several years, but it's going to influence our industry tremendously. And I do understand and appreciate the housing crisis and why it's so important, but simply waiving parking minimums when we actually don't have the transportation infrastructure to back it is the cart before the horse. Let's get the transportation infrastructure where it needs to be so that we can waive parking minimums. And I think that's something that we're going to see play out in California. And I don't think it's going to be in an ideal way. And I think it's going to be really rough, especially for our local politicians who are inheriting these state policies 
And that's something that really worries me. So that again, if I could take the politics out of parking, that would be one of the things that we would be making more data-driven decisions to influence transportation behaviors, alternative modes of transportation, factors like that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, and the second thing you said is that parking, getting a seat at the table and being an afterthought. If I am passionate about one thing in seven years in parking, I can absolutely appreciate that as critical as parking is, it just does not get its due. That's right. It is not at the table. I'm shocked that it's not at the table. It is an afterthought. Even though the first thing that I think about when I'm going to a basketball game or a football game or a baseball game, I am thinking about where I'm parking. That's right. That's part of it. It's, I, you'll appreciate this. I've been very fortunate to speak at some of the ITS conferences in the past. And it's funny because that's what I'm, I call, I now call myself a parking evangelist because I'm out there, again, spreading the good word about parking. But that's part of me beating on the pulpit saying you have to listen, you have to have us be a part of this conversation because the reality is then all of this other design work, everything that you've done to improve traffic, congestion, etc., it's just going to go out the window. It's just crazy enough. And I will say this, and you're going to laugh. I was just at a breakfast yesterday morning for one of my customers. They were doing the police department awards. And I was at a table with this whole contingent of school board members, nothing to do with parking. And my police captain sitting next to me that night, we were talking, he said, I don't know how Julie does it, but she makes parking fun to talk about. She said he had all, she had all these school board members talking about parking and got them all pumped up and motivated about it. And I'm like, yeah, there's always an opportunity because everyone understands it. We all park in some way, shape or form. And I was like, yeah, this is part of the job. And he laughed at me because he's like, only you, Julie, only you can only make you. parking the primary discussion at a table that has nothing to do with parking. I'm like, ah, what can I tell you? I live it, I breathe it. This is just what we do. It's fantastic. It's, it's one of the most misunderstood least understood industries, I would argue, on the planet. I would agree with you. And I have to say one thing, because I know you're getting ready to wrap up, but what a lot of our listeners don't know, Brian, is I can still remember when I met you, and I can still remember (laughs) walking along the Pi Conference trade show floor. Your booth was in a corner, and I remember you coming out of the booth to grab a hold of me and say, let me show you what we do. And I have to tell you, I have always appreciated the hustle. And then that night, we obviously played craps at the Vegas night and learned that we both <laughs> like to gamble. And I just really also want to recognize I'm so proud of all of your achievements because I literally can say I knew you when and to say that from that sales pitch on the floor to what you've accomplished with your team is also something that from an outsider looking in just how proud I am because I also know so many of your team members and just what an amazing representation they are of you. So just again, kudos to Parker and everything that you've done because I can tell you, I knew you when you started. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that very much. You're going to make me blush and uh, parking people are good people. They are. I really appreciate them more than they know. All right, real quick. What do you do when you're not parking? What do you do for fun when you're not, when you're not trying to help people park cars? I have two dogs, and so that's really where I don't. I always people always ask where I live, and I say my dogs live in San Diego, and I visit them occasionally. So I like to hang out with my dogs. We just taught one of them to play soccer, and the other one plays frisbee, so they now have their own unique sports. So yeah, I like to hang out with my dogs. Realistically, 
I don't really, I try to see my family once in a while, but the reality is, and I won't be shy about it, I work all the time because I really love my job. And so other than hanging out with my dogs, you'll pretty much catch me working. Probably need to improve on that, but why not? I'm not having a good time. I've heard the phrase, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Sure. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more with that. Some days there's rough ones. I get that. Sure. I'm not fake here, but in yeah. general, it's really a fun job. And I honestly have to really echo what you said. I've met some of the greatest people. Some of my best friends work in this industry. And here's the other cool thing is I've been around the world with parking. Like parking has literally taken me around the world and I get to go to some of the coolest places. And yeah, I, like I said, it's rough sometimes and sometimes you want to break from it. But the reality is I love what I do and I love the people that I work with and I'm really fortunate and really lucky. And that's why getting that milestone award was such just so massive and I just never would have dreamed if you'd asked me that 10 plus years ago. I never would have dreamed. It was never on the agenda. It was just something very organic for us to meet, work to that point and just to be there is again, super satisfying, so. Yeah, it's awesome. Here's the other little secret, the dirty little secret about parking people. And I can see it in you and even in this time we've spent together, parking people like to grind. We oh, yeah. like to grind. We like hard work. We don't run away from hard work. We run towards it. And those that see parking for what it is, as hard as it is, they do not last long because you have to want to grind in parking. I can see you grinding now, right? You're like, okay, if I'm not with my dogs, I'm working. That is a parking professional. They are grinders. I so. agree with that. And the one thing you know this, we work hard and we play hard. And that's yes. something that we all can appreciate. <laughs> and that's the fun part about it is because we grind so hard, we also all know how to have fun together. And I think that's yeah. probably one of my favorite parts about the industry is it doesn't matter where you work and the fact that we all can have a good time together. Yeah. And I love that about our industry. And that's the part that's really fun is that we really can leave it at the door and really go and have a good time. So I really do appreciate that about the folks that we work with for sure. That's awesome. Listen, we're going to wrap up again. Congratulations on the success. Congratulations on organization of the year. And most importantly, congratulations for being a great representative of the parking industry. I truly appreciate your time. Thank you for spending time with us and sharing your parking wisdom with us. Thank you, Brian. I really do appreciate any opportunity. I love talking about myself. I do love talking about the people I work with, and I just really am a proud person in being a part of this parking industry. It's definitely something that gives back as much as we give. So thank you so much. Okay, moving on to segment two. So I've had the good fortune to have been part of either starting a company or funding actually many companies as startups. And I thought I might take a minute to talk about another topic that's hard to do, and that is starting and scaling a business as an entrepreneur. You just heard in the segment, in the previous segment, how hard it was, it has been, and how hard Julie Dixon has worked at scaling her business. But you've also seen, you could see it in her eyes. I hope you could. I certainly could. That The twinkle in her eye as she really basked in the success of 10 hard years of hard work. As the parking industry changes and transforms through this digital transformation and through the use of technology, there are young companies that are beginning to pop up as innovators all over this industry. I I just wrote a column a couple months ago for Parking Today about the importance of startups in our ecosystem. And, And happily, 
I got some pretty decent feedback from some of the readers. The point they said that resonated with them the most is my assertion that you have to marry parking experience with the innovative spirit of a startup. And off the top of my head, I've got two or three examples, including Parker Technology. Our very own Scott Gould ran operations for Denison Parking for nearly 20 years before coming to Parker full-time. He's parked a lot of cars. George Baker at Park Hub, he grew up in parking before he set out to solve very specific parking challenges with technology. And finally, many of you may know that, or may not know, that Ethan Glass cut his teeth in parking at Accra as a parking operator. So he parked cars around the LA Coliseum. He's got some great stories. You should ask him about them sometimes. The whole point is that the combination of experience along with an entrepreneurial spirit is, in my opinion, the secret sauce to the success in parking. I didn't come from parking, but there were a few other concepts that I also think might've contributed significantly to, this, to my success as an entrepreneur. So first, as you're thinking about becoming an entrepreneur or starting a company, you have to focus on solving a real problem. The world is littered with companies that built awesome technology that didn't solve a big enough problem for people to wanna to pay for. That's why this experience is so helpful. These entrepreneurs saw a problem and then they set about devising technology to help solve the problem. You should ask them for their stories. The second thing that's most important and one of the key failures that I've seen from many startups is to have a real company, you have to cover the four key functions of a company. It's a bit like a car. If you've got a four or six or eight cylinder car, if one of those cylinders or two of those cylinders isn't operating properly, that car will not run. So in other words, the four functions of a business are you, you have to have a sales leader. You've got to have someone who can and is good at marketing and sales. They have to own sales. You have to have a product leader, somebody who's capable of building the product and making it to the specs of what your customers need in solving a problem. The third person is you've got to have a support leader. You've got to have someone who's there to support the customers once your software or your solution is in place. And the fourth function is, and this is most important, you've got to have an accounting and finance leader because you have to be able to create an invoice and collect cash. And my biggest point to, my, to the entrepreneurs that I help and that I'm mentoring, I'm telling them, do you have these four functions covered? You can cover them with two people. Somebody can be responsible for sales and for finance or for product and support to start out because you're trying to be lean and not spend a lot of money. But you have to think about you can't be overweighted on sales and marketing and you can't be overweighted on engineering and product. You have to have balance in the organization. And then the last thing is I'll tell you that failure is not a bad thing. The key to failure is you've got to be able to fail fast. And the idea about failing fast is you've got to be able to survive long enough to allow serendipity to happen. And the way you do that is through experiments. People that know me know that experiments never fail because you either learn something or it has success. And so your ability to just take on challenges a little at a bite at a time, I think is one of the biggest things that leads to success as an entrepreneur. So I have a million more stories from my days of being involved in startups and helping fund startups. If you'd like to learn more 
or have a deeper conversation about it, about starting a company, just reach out to me via email, give me a call or send me a note via LinkedIn. Happy to help. We're back, segment three, after having just talked about how hard it is to do consulting and build a business in parking, talked a little bit about building and starting a company. Now let's talk about something that is equally as hard, but something that probably not a lot of people know about. That topic is triathlons. And perhaps something you've never thought about as it relates to triathlons. With me today is Kent King, Parker's VP of Sales, who doubles as a triathlon coach in his spare time. Welcome to Harder Than It Looks, Kent. Thank you, Brian. Before we wrap up this episode, we'd love to hear about a topic that is certainly harder than it looks, training and competing in triathlons. So my first question for you is, tell us how you got into triathlons in the first place, and then how did you get to coaching? Sure. So I think it was into my freshman year in college, it was like in winter, it was like January. And one of my best friends said, I've decided that I want to do a triathlon every decade from here on out. So we're 21 or something like that. I wanted to do a triathlon, at least one in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and so on. He's let's do it together. I'm like, okay, great. So I grew up swimming in a lake. I'm like, yeah, I can swim. I've got a mountain bike. We were just doing a sprint triathlon. So my mountain bike's fine. And then, yeah, I run, I ran a lot, right? Playing soccer and basketball. So I'm like, this should be a cakewalk. So it was a pool swim. Then you went outside and did the bike and run. It was a 10 minute swim. And the goal was to see how many laps you could do in the pool for 10 minutes. I got to the other end and I was completely out of breath. I was drinking water. I'm like, what did I put myself into? So swimming in a lake, goofing off with your friends is a lot different than swimming for 10 minutes or yeah. a mile or two miles as it is in a long distance Ironman. So that was my new thing. I'm like, I'm going to conquer this. This is my new goal. Yeah. So throughout my 20s, I was doing sprints and Olympics weren't long enough. So I was really super heavy in the half Ironman distance. Okay. That's a 1.2 mile swim, open water, a 56 mile bike ride, and then you run a half marathon. And I love that distance because I could do one about every other month and keep up wow. with recovery. My races would last about six hours, six to seven hours was what those races would take me to complete those races. So it was enough time that I could still have enough time to train and then also recover to do one every other month. So yeah, I've done so how many have you done? I'm like over 30, 30 triathlons. And wow. then, yeah, so I've done a few. You've done a few. Okay. So 30 triathlons, how'd you get to coaching? It seems like a natural transition maybe, but yeah. So I stopped doing triathlons when I got married and started having kids. Yeah. And then the father-in-law was a big golfer. So then of course that's how I took up golf, right? Cause choosing your imbalance. I get yeah, it. Exactly. 
So then after my kids were a little older, I started training again. I was started training for a long distance and then I had a few injuries. I had a, a hip surgery, I had some a couple of groin surgeries. Uh. And while I was down, I had those surgeries in back-to-back Januarys. And that first winter, some of my buddies in Cincinnati said, hey, I know you're down and out, but we need some accountability or we want someone to write us some training plans. So that's how I started. That was probably in about the winter of 2015. And I did that for a couple of years just with my buddies. And then as if I didn't have enough to do, I answered an ad, actually a Lifetime Fitness here in Indianapolis. They wanted a, a triathlon coach. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. You probably didn't even know that. So I would do three classes a week at the Lifetime in Castleton, Castle Creek. And that's where I have one, two, three of my original five people that I coached started there in January of 2016. I still coach today. Okay. And that's, and then just being around, right? Going to races and meeting people and Facebook things and hey, I love yeah. my coach and you'd post yeah. things and they're like, will you introduce me to him? So forth. So did you say three of 25? Did you have 25? No, I have six right now. Oh, six. Okay. Three of my first five that I started. Oh, three of your first five. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, that's interesting. All right. So of course, the concept of swimming, biking and running all at the, at the in the same day makes my head hurt. It makes my feet hurt. <laughs> So we know it's hard, but tell us something that is exceptionally hard that the uninitiated may actually not appreciate besides the obvious. Right. Yeah. Besides someone coming to me and, Hey, I want to, I want you to coach me to do an do an Ironman or just a, a sprint triathlon. My first question was always, can you swim? And they say, <laughs> yeah, of course I can. <laughs> but so typically that's the first question I ask, but beyond the swim, the bike and the run, there, there's really three other things that people really don't pay attention to or they don't think about yeah. that are as hard or harder than actually doing the swim, bike and run. Uh, for, for me, the, the first thing is the mental side of things, right? I almost have weekly calls with some of my athletes because yeah. they're, they're on tilt or I can't do this or I, I felt like I had a bad workout and I'm behind. Hmm. All those kind of things that pop up in someone's head or they need motivation or yeah. re- redirection. Okay, so uh, with 30 triathlons under your belt, you must have two or three stories, personal stories, about your mental challenges and where it came and how you overcame that. Obviously that first one on my first swim I beat myself up for weeks and months trying to make it a couple laps in a pool. That was the super big struggle for me, right? Is you're walking or running, you can control your breathing really easily. Okay. But in swimming, you only take a breath and you have to control that. So that's a big mental thing too. Yeah. So I did go get help for that that mental part of swimming. Okay. Go back to the basics and yeah, so I needed help on that. And then the other big thing was nutrition. Yeah. When I first I loved started, that. I'm, I'm really interested in this because yeah. I'm sure it is so key to success. Here was my first few races. This was my nutrition plan. 
It was st <laughs> stop at a convenience store or gas station, get uh, um, brown sugar cinnamon pop tarts, get a those little powdered sugar donuts, get a packet of those, and a bottle of Gatorade. And that was my pre-race meal. So that worked pretty good for the sprints, just a sugar high, but at yeah. the end, your, your tummy's just in a big knot because, right? <laughs> so then I had to learn the hard way that nutrition, when you get to the Olympic and especially the half at, that's a whole nother leg of a race is the nutrition part of it. And a half Ironman, we have people doing six to eight hours. Yeah. And full, I've got people that will take six to 14 hours. So you, nutrition is the fourth subject. So, yeah. So you're literally counting the calories as far as how many calories you're getting in. And I remember you telling me stories first about, about some of your athletes not hydrating properly and then not getting the pre-calories that they needed because you knew there was just no way you're going to be able to get enough calories in them in the middle of the race or towards the end of the race. I thought that was fascinating because once that race starts, if you didn't do all the work up front, you were going to crash. And I'm sure you had examples where they it actually happened. You were like, yep. You can see it in their eyes when mm. I, I've seen people on they get onto the run. I can tell you're behind nutrition, aren't you? Yeah, I didn't fill up my last bottle. Or I didn't finish this. Yeah. But you're right. So now on uh, Saturdays, we, we get it together as a group almost every Saturday and, and train together. So now we're at the point where I want them to treat Friday night as and Saturday as a race. Okay. So everything you do Friday night should be the exact same thing you do before a race. That's your food, your sleep, yeah. your getting things ready for the next day. So you get up and you're not rushed and all that. Yep. Kind of stuff. So you be, becomes a habit. Yeah. So you get to a race day, you know, how your body is going to react and you're prepared. And they always say nothing new on race day. So it's yeah. a big, big pattern to get things ready and the nutrition. Yeah. We count, uh, calories per hour. Um, water, sodium, carbohydrates. Yeah. Everything is measured and counted. Huh? That's interesting. Okay. And so then I know the third thing that we, we talked about as a big challenge is just the time it takes and the mm -hmm. toll it takes or the commitment that it takes away from other things. Yeah, absolutely. It does take a toll on your family. Mm. And in the end of summer here on Saturdays, it'll be a 10 or 11 hour training day half your weekend's gone does your spouse your family can they i guess live without you for the day right and they're training 20 to 30 hours a week so that does take a toll on the family especially on these you're training for long distance you really have to have get approval from your family to spend that much time away from them for your training and the race yeah, it's the, the big setup, right? They got to they got to know what you're all getting yourself into. Okay, so if someone listening is interested in getting into starting a triathlon or, or getting into a triathlon, where, where do they start? What what do they what what should they? What's the first step? I think the first step is which of the three sports do you are do you not excel at or are you uncomfortable in? So that's where I would start and. And really, you should find somebody, a friend, a group. 
there's running groups, there's cycling groups, there's master swim, swim groups, or you just get on Facebook and find, there's probably seven or eight triathlon clubs right here in the Indy, in the oh, area. that's interesting. Okay. That's right? a good tip. Yep. And one thing you mentioned earlier with Julie about the parking industry, right? That's an, I think the triathlon industry is just as great for the fact that you could, it's very welcoming and very yeah. helpful. Yeah. So Saturday, tomorrow, when we're out tomorrow, we're doing open water swimming a bike. I've got great swimmers who aren't very good at cycling or running huh. and vice versa. And everyone is just very open and helpful with each other. I really do love the triathlon community. Just get involved with a group or join a run, join a bike ride. Yeah. It's a very welcoming community. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. If uh, if anybody wants to learn more, they can get a hold of Kent. We'll put your uh, email address in in the show notes. And maybe we can attract one or two triathletes because it's harder than it looks, but I think you can help them through it. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thank you for joining me. Okay, that's a wrap on this episode of Harder Than It Looks, Parking Uncovered, presented by Parker Technology. Please leave us a review if you liked what you heard. Make sure you tune in next month as we continue to uncover tips, tricks, and best practices to manage what we all know is harder than it looks. Parking a car. Bye for now.